When you're on vacation in a great city like Paris, you naturally want to take in as much as you can every day. But the exhausting pace of a quick visit is not really going local. When you come to Paris as an American, slow your pace, sit down, don't try to cover as much as you can. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting a guide to the corner cafes of Paris and learning how we visitors can be a cool and comfortable part of this Parisian scene. And guides from Ireland and Wales explain how singing is in the Celtic blood and how we can get the very most out of the experience. You're sitting in a bar at night in Ireland and there's loads of people around you and then hush comes because people want to give respect to the song and listen to the narrative, even though they've heard it many times before, they want to be reminded of it. And the hair on the back of your neck goes up and the tear comes in your eye. Stick around as we relax in the cafes of Paris and enjoy the songs that make Ireland and Wales so Irish and Welsh. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You can really get a feel for the cultures of Europe by joining the locals in their everyday hangouts. In Paris, that means spending part of your afternoon in a cafe. And in Cardiff or Galway, that means spending time at the pub, where there's a good chance someone's singing a traditional ballad steeped in local history. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. And today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting acquainted with the cafe culture of Paris. And later in the hour, with Celtic singing cultures. Why? So you can enjoy life like the French, the Irish, and the Welsh do every day. French culture is many-faceted, and it comes with a few challenges. And once you master these different aspects of French culture, a visit to that country becomes more enjoyable than ever. One of the beautiful things about French culture is the café scene and café culture. Today we're talking café society in France, and I'm joined by two French guides who know and enjoy the café scene with gusto. Arnaud Savignat comes from Paris, and Kristen Kuznick is an American who's lived in Paris for four years and uh, married into the Parisian society. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Arnaud, when you think of café culture in, in Europe, it's, it's big in America, it's big all over Europe, really, the history of the cafés in Paris is, is quite interesting. I, I think it goes back to the 17th century? Uh, I would say it goes back to the Revolution time, more or less. I mean, before already, they, they were going to inns, but... Uh, okay, so yeah, the I think 1700s really, yeah, really, Yeah, 1700s, 18th century, uh, Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI's time. So these yeah. cafés were places where aristocrats would go, or would revolutionaries anyone, go? Or? Anyone, actually, during the Revolution, it was really essentially where the, uh, the, the thoughts were exchanged, and don't you agree, Christian, with absolutely. me? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, La, La Procope, is that Le the... Le yes. The, the oldest cafe in Paris, yes, absolutely. The oldest one. 1684, if I do remember. I think you're right. And then when you go through uh, La Procope today, what do you find, Kristen? Um, an old world feel, I would say. And the desk, which was used by Voltaire. Voltaire drank coffee there? Well, he did. I, I heard there was like 300 cafes in Paris before the revolution, and then during the revolution it just boomed, and there were nearly a couple thousand, and today there's 12,000 cafes. You can't walk down the street in Paris without finding a cafe. It's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah. They're on every street corner. What is the demand? I mean, it must be a huge demand that, that keeps these things in business. Well, first of all, coffee and drinking, of course, <laughs> beverages, food, but also social activity. People are mixing, meeting with their neighbors, Having a break, yeah, it's taking the time. Yeah. We we really we, we keep our home for well, it's we love our home, of course, but it's a place where we sleep and dine with friends. But basically, in the morning, the first thing is you go out in a cafe and have your coffee, absolutely, rather than having it at home. Really? So just yeah. for many people in Paris, the daily routine is not to sit at home and have breakfast, but to go to the neighborhood cafe. Yes. What would you have for a breakfast when you go out? Not much. I mean, I would have a uh, roll, you know, a croissant, croissant. And, and, and a coffee. It's, and a coffee. Uh, uh, breakfast is not a big deal in France. Right. Yeah, Unfortunately. It's, really not. it's hard to get used to yeah, as an yeah. American. <laughs> it's true. We're used to our bacon and eggs, but in France it's really just caffeinated beverage and... And a sweet roll. Yeah, absolutely. We it. don't have time. We don't get up in the, in the morning, so we don't have time for that. <laughs> isn't there a, a sort of a, isn't there a sort <laughs> of an ethic where you have your work life, you have your domestic life, yes. and then there's a little private area in between? I think the private life is, I mean, the private life is really, really private and it's totally away from uh, the professional life. That's how I see things. We and it's a, it's, a, it's a buffer between the work and the home, is that right? Or Yes. I mean, I, I'm so, thinking yeah. the cafe culture plays into that. Well, I think it's a little bit different. For example, in England, it's very common to go to the pub with your colleagues right after work. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not necessarily not the case in France. In France. No. You leave work, you leave your professional life behind, yeah. and you go to the cafe and you see your neighbors. Okay. And your friends. You yeah. Know, and, yeah. 
so you have a routine to meet there. Is that after work and it's before you go home? or sure, it before, be before after. and after. Yeah. Before yeah. and after. My it's husband goes to the cafe right before getting into the metro every morning. He's there for about six minutes, has his coffee, his croissant, and he's on his way. Now, Kristen, you're, you're an American who just is a Francophile. I, mean, I am, You love yeah. France. I know you're a great guide in France. Uh, you met a Frenchman, and now you're living in Paris. I am, yeah. I moved there four years ago, and just shortly after moving there, uh, near my apartment, I was sitting next to a very handsome Frenchman. And of ah, course, you know... The, there you the, go. <laughs> you know, the, well, the chairs, this is the thing about the cafes as well. Um, it's not necessarily always about the drink, but it's about taking a break, uh, sitting on the sidewalk cafe, shoulder to shoulder with strangers. You can Very over- next to each other. Absolutely. You're yes. very, very close. The you space close. is very small in France And, and that well. can be sort of uh, stressful or out of the comfort zone of an American tourist. It looks like it's it full. It can be, yes. So, Kristen, absolutely. as an American, yeah. what, what advice can you give Americans who feel a little gawky in this sophisticated French cafe scene? to be comfortable. Just get comfortable. Just get in there. Yeah, you have to. Well, the thing is, is Americans are so used to having so much space around us. Just forget right. about your space. And Paris say. is yeah. one of the most densely populated cities in the world. Mm-hmm. There's so many people there. You just have to be comfortable with people being closer to you. Yeah, don't feel offended by that. Yeah, I think you go to the cafe to meet people and to see people, actually. It's the whole about, you know, uh, watching people, watching the, the world go by. That's in our culture. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, we're talking cafe society, cafe culture in France. I'm joined by Arnaud Savignon and Kristen Kuznick. Now Kristen Michel. Yes. Because of a cafe. Yes. So if you're going, if you're uh, available and you go to France and you go to a cafe, there's a good chance you'll meet somebody. You could. You could. You could. You just have to be open to it. You have to be open to it, and you have to go into a place that looks full and make it not quite full. Yes. And when someone asks you, do you speak English? Absolutely, I do. Hey, Would you like to talk? Let's talk. <laughs> and, and you get yourself into a potentially a lifelong conversation. You know, Americans are really into their lattes now, and we all know just how to order the latte and their fancy Italian and so on. Sure. What, Kristen, as an American in Paris enjoying the cafe scene, what are the key vocabulary? Just a couple of key words that we should know. Sure, sure. First of all, a regular coffee is a cafe, mm-hmm. and that's always an espresso. It's served in the demitasse. That's your cheapest drink you can order, and it's what a typical Parisian would drink. If that is too strong for you or not enough liquid, you can order a café allongé, or sometimes called a café américain. And that is basically what we would call an Americano. So that would be a shot of espresso with some hot water. Exactly. Just thinned out a little bit. Same amount of caffeine. Exactly. Exact same amount of caffeine. And there's actually, it should be noted, that there is actually less caffeine in espresso than there is in drip coffee, which we're used to as Americans. Mm -hmm. So it's actually probably better for you. And then if you need your milk, you want to order a café crème. Cafe crème, so that would be the, what we call a, yes. a latte. That's what we call a exactly. latte. Exactly, it's still the espresso with steamed milk in you it. You don't say latte because that just means milk over there, right? In right. Italian, in Italian, yes. So what mean anything to a French Italian. person? Italian. No, yeah. <laughs> and it could be offending. Actually, we don't like to hear latte. You know, it's, no. This is French. Now I like a, <laughs> I like a macchiato in Italian. Right, and in French that would be a cafe noisette. Cafe noisette. Cafe noisette. This is noisette. a good word, and it's hard for me to pronounce noisette. Noisette. Perfect. It means walnut. Walnut. Uh, so, walnut. No, so the other a hazelnut. 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 Is that because of the color? Yes. Yes. And that would mean a little bit of milk in your espresso. Exactly. Yes, a dollop of steamed milk on mm-hmm. top of your espresso. Noisette. And it only costs about 30 to 40 cents more than the espresso, whereas if you order a cafe creme, it's at least twice the price. And you now, can even just ask for, for milk. grand creme. You know, a grand creme. Or a cafe double. I go for a double yes. uh, cafe creme yeah. sometimes. Un double cafe. Right. <laughs> they, they actually understand my, uh, my butchered French. And uh, if you sit at the bar, it's always cheaper than sitting at a table? Or always. standing at the bar standing sometimes. At the bar, yeah. standing, You're lucky yes. if there are stools at the bar. Stools at the bar. So if you want to just slam down a coffee for not much money, go to the bar. Absolutely. And if you also need to find a WC break, which is difficult ah. to find in Paris, it's good to pop, pop into a cafe. Order the cheapest thing on the menu, a cafe. Six it, minutes that's, later, that's you're fast. That's very, that's yeah. very fast. You know, in the morning, I always explain my my clients that you just go there inside, get your coffee, and it's literally three minutes and a half. Right. By the time you you arrive, it's already ordered. And you use you the pay, WC. You yes. Very so civilized. Quick. Now, is the quality of coffee standard across uh, all the different cafes, or do you in Paris know that one cafe will have better coffee than the yes, other? Yes, some cafes have better coffee. They have a better machine, they have a better brand, so I'll go for Café Richard or Lavazza when they have, you know, Italian coffee as well. Yeah, mm. it has to be Italian. Never and mind. the brand of the coffee the is always yes. displayed. It is a big region. deal, so isn't you know it? What they Ely as well. So Ely. What, is, what are your favorites again, Arnaud? Uh, Ely, Lavazza, and Café Richard. 
Richard, I can Richard. remember that. Okay. Richard. Yeah. Richard, I like Lavazza. Yeah, Richard. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, with the with the rise of Starbucks as a power, even in Europe, there's mm-hmm. Starbucks all over the place. Oh, yes. How has Starbucks impacted the French cafe scene? I don't think it has. I don't think it has at all. Yeah. I was really surprised when yeah, the first Starbucks too. took hold in Paris, and then they've multiplied. I was revolved like at the at the first actually. <laughs> well, it's different. It's it's fundamentally different, isn't it? Because yeah. Starbucks is big. I mean, a, a, a grande is a unthinkably but large it's, it's enormous. They don't provide the same products, standard. nor the same idea. Uh, but here's the big difference. I think the Parisians uh, or the French are, are enjoying Starbucks coffee. It's high-quality yes. coffee. Mm-hmm. But the difference is they sit to enjoy it. So all the Starbucks cafes, all the tables and chairs are always taken. It's Filled difficult up. to find a spot. Filled up. You never yeah. find a spot. Mm. Yeah, so it's possible to get a Starbucks to go or a, a, a fast food chain coffee to it go. Is, yes. Can you get a, a coffee to go in a cafe or is that kind of odd? Uh, more and more you, you can. You can. It's uh-huh. start, yes, but it is rare it's, and yeah. sometimes they have to really dig and search for those cups that mm-hmm. are somewhere in a mm-hmm. cabinet somewhere. So it's it's not, um, it doesn't go with the territory as it much doesn't, as it no, really. Because not you really. go there to sit down really and have uh, right. you know, an unrest. And I can tell when I, when mm. I see someone carrying a very large Starbucks coffee, I know that's a a fellow American. <laughs> <laughs> is it okay if you're having a, a breakfast uh, to go to the bakery and, and buy something and bring it to the cafe? Mm, difficult, um, very difficult, I would say. I do it. Uh, I'm trying to be careful when I do it. And then when I do it, I know the cafe and I know they don't provide a croissant pain au chocolat. Ah. So I, I, I bring mine and I'm just eating it very discreetly in this little bag. Or, because I know you are a model of politeness and sensitivity. Oh, I, well, okay. <laughs> or <laughs> <You're> sometimes <flattering. laughs> you can go to the cafe and you intend to buy a croissant or a pain au chocolat from them, but they're out. And then ah. on, in that case, then they will say, be my guest to go across the street, get oh, your okay. pastries and bring them back because sure. we don't have any more to sell. But if they have baskets of them on the bar, that would yes. be bad stuff. you that's should be not, expected yeah. to okay. buy theirs and not mm-hmm. bring For some own. reason, I thought it was okay at breakfast time to bring in something else, but that's no longer okay. Really. No, wow. When you're thinking about eating in a cafe, you do have little light light meals, little snacks, uh, croque monsieur and so on. Sure. Croque monsieur. Sandwich. Yeah, omelette. Sandwich. Uh, uh, the omelettes are easy for tourists yes. to get. And sandwiches. And a croque monsieur is like a... Uh, a, a, gr- a grilled cheese sandwich. Ham and cheese sandwich with this is the difference: bechamel sauce in the interior. Oh, yeah, true. Yes. Cheese over the top and grilled. That's what a croque monsieur is different mm, from what we would call it. It's the bechamel, yeah. Uh-huh. It's that white sauce. Now that you white got the croque monsieur, and then you got croque madame. Yes, the ladies Same with the egg. Thing with the egg on the top. With the egg on the top. So yeah, the, the croque. Fried egg. The, what is what is <laughs> croque? Egg, yes. What does croque mean? Croque. Uh, it's like you know croque yeah, to, to croque, bite to bite uh, to bite. So the man's bite croque monsieur. And the woman's bite, croque madame. madame. Yes, with the egg on top. It's not very and popular. Then, the croque madame, very no, much. I think it's uh, uh, the yeah, croque monsieur is the standard. Monsieur. And then you've got the the plat du jour, which is plat du jour, very yes. nice yes. deal. That's, That's just the daily special. We'll enjoy another steaming cup of café culture in Paris with Arnaud and Kristen in just a moment. How have you fared in the cafés of Paris? We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. We'll get to your calls next. And in a bit, we'll sail west to Ireland and Wales, Celtic lands where choirs enliven churches, and where spine-tingling moments of song make a pub visit a lifelong memory. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait, je voyage 
Oui. Quand je dis je voyage, souvent, de temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steve. Wow, you've, you've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steve. You got to sound like Maurice Chevalier or something, and it's it's actually good, or Inspector Clouseau. Well, so many Americans too. You know, like I've got a friend in Paris, probably the least self-conscious person I know. In elle parle français comme ça. Yeah. And when you go to a restaurant, excusez-moi, mais j'ai commandé <laughs> la salade niçoise sans la tone. <laughs> oh. Two Parisians, Arnaud Savignon and Kristen Michel, are our guides to the café culture in France today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Robert's on the phone in Cleveland, Ohio. Robert, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing well. Do you have a thought on cafes in Paris? Well, yes, I do. Actually, my first trip was very quickly planned. I just decided, why have I been waiting so long? Let's go. Um, with my four years of high school French under tow. I went in November, on the November 4th. And um, I have to say, with a cafe culture, for me, my experience was uh, Paris is definitely a walking city. Um, a good book to read is Le Flaneur by Edmund White. It talks about walking. And you walk around and you see what, and this has been mentioned by previous callers, some cafes are more lively, some are more sedate. You kind of feel what you're in the mood for. For me, I chose a cafe on that basis. Mm-hmm. And also, if ma pierre mal, if my feet were killing me, um, mm-hmm. I would sit down. The um, service person um, would come, and I would ask for me. I would get either, depending on the time of day, a cafe au lait and a brioche or a cure royale. And it was just very relaxing. So now you felt, uh, Robert, you felt that you could sit there ordering just the simplest thing, um, a cafe au lait and a croissant or whatever, and you could linger as long as you wanted to. Yes, I could. Now what happens when one waiter is off duty and another waiter comes on? Have you ever stayed that long? Um, actually, I have because um, my feet were really killing me. Um, I walked all over, and what happens is you can pay your your tab ahead of time. You just signal the waiter and just do the check hand signal. The waiter comes over, gives you your bill, you pay, and he he or she will rip the receipt almost in half to kind of rip it a little bit. Which you could do by yourself, by the way. Uh, <laughs> or no. Yeah. Rip it in half. He didn't pay enough. He didn't buy enough. No, then no well. Okay, so they rip the receipt in part, and then that waiter's gone. The next one comes on. He knows you're paid up. Did you right. get... Apparently, you felt comfortable just hanging out there longer. Uh, Arno, is, uh, that, is that true? Can you it just... It is totally there's true. There's no problem, um, no I, bad I vibes, no problem. I saw a program on TV last year about that, a documentary about cafe culture. And these journalists are actually going to the cafe just round by the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which is, a, you know, the most touristy place ever. Hmm. We would think they would just kick oh, you I, out and get the money. Yeah. And these journalists stayed actually three hours. They were two. They had one espresso for three hours. Nobody ever told them to go away. Nobody chased them away. They come, you know, regularly to ask them if they want, you know, one more drink. No, we're fine. We're just, you know, we're reading. That's fine. So that's it. That's interesting. The table uh, is yours. That's every culture has what they will fight to defend. The Germans will fight important. to defend no speed limits on the Autobahn. The English will fight to defend. Mm-hmm. You can't fence off the commons. We can walk everywhere. They'll have a mass trespass just to assert their rights to walk everywhere. And the French, they will assert their right to sit in a cafe, buy it's very un espresso, and yeah. stay the whole afternoon. And I would raise another point, if I may, is that when you come to Paris or France as an American, to slow your pace, sit down, don't try to cover as much as you can. Very often, my clients, you know, would say, hey, we, you know, we have two days, we want to see as much as we can. No, please, sit down. Sit down. If you cannot cover everything, just sit down and just cover what you can cover and really experiment the cafe because that's where the French are and not in the monuments or in the museums. Yeah. Good advice. But, Robert. You know, that, that is very true, and I found out that sometimes if you, if you sit long enough and relax long enough, it will come to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There were there were a parade of six people walking their um, white schnauzers, <laughs> who all walked by in front of me, and I'm, I was just it was November, it was cool, or actually on the cold side for for Parisians um, coming from Cleveland, Ohio, it was 40 degrees. I was you know it's considered balmy, and you just you just watch, and and that is part of the 
for me, the cafe culture is you watch, you, you window shop in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. That's it, yes. And it was, it was very fun. The second time I brought my niece with me, and we sat at the Café Severin, and we sat outside, had un royal, and after dinner, and had a very, very relaxing evening. Again, the service people are not in a hurry, as in America, to turn over a table. Absolutely, mm-hmm. because That's they're paid differently. Mm-hmm. Right. That's because, true. How are they paid differently, Chris? Well, they make a, a living wage, first of all. Right. I worked as a waitress when I was in college here in the United States, and we made sometimes less than minimum wage, and so we were working for tips. Mm-hmm. In France, they start with a working wage, and so they're not working for tips. Their tip is already worked into the price of what you've ordered. Now, that's right. a stress point for a lot of American mm-hmm. travelers, and I understand you just leave what's called the brown coins on the table. Is, is, how do you tip? Sure. Right. You, do, sure. You, leave, yeah. Yeah. You, leave exactly. the bra- you leave the small coins. Yes, small round coins. Up. Yeah. Yeah, Robert, round up. Robert from Cleveland, thanks yeah. for your call. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Kitty's on the line in Bixby, Oklahoma. What are your thoughts for Kristen and Arnaud about cafe culture in France? Um, well, I had a particular question because of visiting in May. When we think of um, the cafe, it's, you know, I know you can dine in as well in the cafes and kind of look out onto the streets. But, but we're thinking about coming over the German border into like maybe Colmar, Colmar area. I guess it's Colmar. Um, in early May, are there particular areas outside the Paris area that are just great for visiting the cafes? Uh, a good place to. There's many places. Uh, I, I mean, think Colmar is lovely. Yeah, it's a great place. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Colmar oh, is great. Well, yeah, it's one of my favorite places in France. Colmar. Alsace is beautiful. And from there, Colmar is sort of the big city in a very small context, but mm-hmm. it is definitely the urban center. And then you you side trip to uh, Egusheim and Ricfier and all sorts of beautiful little towns nearby. Mm. Yes. Oh, that's I want to go there. I and love it. And rent a bicycle in May, and you yeah. can go through the vineyards. So, so May's not too early to think in terms of being out, I guess. No, outside. no, not at all. Yeah, May is uh, normally nice. It could well, be, it could be well you live in Oklahoma. It might be hotter in Oklahoma than there, but just <laughs> wear a sweater and a coat. But that's a beautiful time to be there, mm-hmm. Kitty. Right. Oh, that's great. And then I guess the last thing I might ask is, um, being an American or just an outsider and not truly understanding um, the culture, the cafe culture, um, do we eat and run? I mean, I, I know that Christine was talking about her husband coming for six minutes and leaving. Is there an appropriate, uh, like what Amy Vanderbilt say, do not just hang out for 20 minutes or, you know, an hour. What is the idea of the proprietors? What, what do they expect from us? Uh, well, breakfast is a totally different thing, first of all. Breakfast is okay. very quick, usually standing at the bar, standing and then you the move bar. on. And that's the thing. It's also cheaper at the bar. Everybody is, that's why you're... This is quick. Yeah, you, you absolutely. Just, you, you go to work, it has to be very quick. We exactly. have a lot of time, oh, right. yes. You're sure. slamming down a cup of coffee, eating But that if you have time, you just sit down. It's, uh, so there's two ways. You can have yeah. a practical, a quick breakfast, or you can have a linger in the afternoon. Or it depends or on your rhythm, really. If you have, uh, you know, a lot of time to hang around, I mean, the, the table is going to be yours for two hours or three hours, even though you just have one cappuccino. Kitty, oh, go for it. Just they, good luck. Yeah. And you're going to have a wonderful time there yes. in May or any month. Just go into those cafes and pretend you're local. Oh, that's great. Good advice. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, happy well, travels. Have fun. Uh huh. Bless you. Bon bye bye. We have an email from Sharon in Thousand Oaks, California. Sharon writes, I love outdoor cafes any time of year, especially in March. People are all bundled up and not too many smokers. Wherever your hotel is, that becomes your cafe area. And after a few days, you feel like it's your Paris. She likes the left bank, particularly between the Sorbonne and the Notre Dame and the Seine River. I think that's very good advice that, uh, you know, you uh, have your hotel and it establishes your neighborhood. I choose a hotel considering what neighborhood is going to be my home in Paris. And then I love to just sort of get the lay of the land and, and have sort of stake out. This is my cafe. This is where I go. And then you go back a second time and they generally recognize you. Mm, they do? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Becomes your neighborhood. You know, a point about the smoking, however, that's all changed. That's all brand new just so in the last two years. Um, you can't smoke in the interiors of the cafes and restaurants any longer. That's quite an adjustment for the Parisians, who part of having a cup of coffee might be having a cigarette as well. No, we, we, we can't smoke anymore. I mean, exactly. Now, you, you can't, you, but you, that was an adjustment, wasn't yeah. it, for a lot of people who like to smoke in the cafes? It's yeah, a big adjustment. Yeah. So what yeah. they've done now is you, you can smoke outside, On and terraces. some of these terraces are still mm. in these uh, shoulder months, like for, she mentioned March, for example. Mm. The cafes, to keep them warm, they'll put up these plastic walls with uh, space heaters, to keep the outside warm. That's where the smokers are allowed to smoke. 
So they now are taking over the terraces. Yeah, that's a problem. Yes, you can't ah. eat in the terrace without being, you know, uh, bothered by a smoker. Now, that's oh, the problem, so yeah. these areas that are tarped in on the sidewalk mm-hmm. are becoming well, smoky. Th- legally, you have to have an opening of about two meters fifty, I think, uh, to refresh the air so you can smoke on the terrace. So to call it, no quote, t- outdoors, it needs to yes. have that o- opening. Yeah. yeah, because they do cover in the winter time. You know, I was over there uh, one December, and I remember. Um, What's the beautiful uh, Market Street, Montorgueil? Montorgueil. 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 On the corner, everybody was in this classic cafe, Mm -hmm. and I could see the neighborhood there, but half the people were sitting outside. It was very cold, and they had the heaters there, the space Mm -hmm. heaters outside, and the people who were shivering through their cafe experience uh, wanted a cigarette. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the cafe had accommodated their needs by providing those yeah. heaters. Yeah, it's not very save the planet, but it's just wonderful, you know. <laughs> you can't always save the planet. you got to have <laughs> a good yeah. coffee with a you cigarette, I, I even guess. saw a cafe with blankets on the chairs for oh, people yes. sitting outside. Oh, you yeah. have to give me the address. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And Lisa's on the phone in Puyallup, Washington. Lisa, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just wanted to tell you about a wonderful neighborhood cafe experience that we had a couple years ago. We were staying in the Montparnasse area and we went to Le Select on our first night, and we were waited on by Jack the Waiter, who treated everybody there like he knew them. And I think he did know most of the people, but he treated us the same way as he treated them. We had a wonderful dinner. Um, we just had salads. They had um, also had delicious French onion soup. And when it came time to leave Paris on that trip, we said, oh, we want our last dinner to be there at Le Select again. So we went back, and Jack greeted us, and he was, again, so welcoming. And we got to talking to him about the history of Le Select, and he um, shared that he had a photo from after the war of American soldiers um, eating at Le Select. And we were really interested in it, and he said, I'll send it to you when you get home. Mm. And um, sure enough, he made a copy of it and sent it to us with a very nice note, and we were very, very touched, actually, um, and honored to have it. So when we went back to Paris later that year, we, of course, went to Le Select for our first dinner back in Paris, and he again greeted us as if we were old friends and um, had a glass of champagne delivered to our table, complimentary. Wow, that's nice. Yes, yes, we were, um, we felt... So the the whole thing about the neighborhood cafe, even though Le Select is a you know bigger place and well known, it still has that feeling of um, sort of like a family, and we just loved it. So sounds like a wonderful experience. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yes, that's a beautiful great, memory. Great Thank well. you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. I'm speaking with Arnaud Sauvignon and Kristen Michel, and we're talking about cafe culture. And let's finish things off, Kristen and Arnaud, just with uh, your image of a very good cafe moment. Kristen, you're somewhere in Paris with your Parisian husband, and you're having a special moment together. Where are you? Oh, we're sitting shoulder to shoulder in our neighborhood cafe called Café de la Poste. It's just a simple corner cafe. There's a little bit of sun, a slight wind, and we're drinking kier. What is kier? Oh, kier. Kier is probably the most common aperitif you can have, so just before the dinner time. So before dinner, you go down the street to your neighborhood cafe. Right. Order two kiers, which is a little bit of creme de cassis liqueur, topped off with dry white wine, served in a, a champagne flute. Uh, usually get a plate of salty peanuts to go with that, and we talk about the day. You savor the moment together. Absolutely. Enjoying each other's company, a kier in Paris. And watch people go by. Or no. So I'm trying to rivalize with this uh, wonderful comment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what comes to my mind is, uh, okay, this is the end of the day. I've been doing a walking tour, so I'm exhausted. Uh, my feet are so sore. And I am by the Place du Châtelet. I'm stopping by the Zimmer, which is a little chic place. I, you know, it's, it's not my neighborhood, but just very chic, very um, kind of lounge style inside. Uh, so elegant, white third. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's so nice inside. Professional clientele. Yes. Uh, not obviously more expensive. You know, I'm having a cafe as well, so it doesn't break my uh, wallet. Uh, <laughs> but just, you know, it's nice, pleasant, people around. And it's just silent for me, and it's quiet, and I can see the city go by. This is your chance, no matter how nice or simple your apartment is, to have a little bit of elegance mm-hmm. in a very elegant city mm-hmm. for the cost of a, of a cafe. Yeah, three, four euros. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're fantasizing about enjoying Paris with the help of a cafe. Arnaud and Kristen, thanks so much. Thank you're you. You're welcome. Thank you, Rick. Merci beaucoup. Au revoir. À bientôt.
There's another kind of culture in the Celtic lands, especially in Ireland and Wales, where music plays an important role in keeping their history alive. And sipping a beer in a village pub, you become part of the scene. As you explore the world, you find that music is an integral part of a lot of cultures, and it really enlivens your sightseeing experience. And of course, when you're traveling in Europe, the music culture of Wales and Ireland comes to mind. I want to explore the Celtic singing cultures of Wales and Ireland, and we're joined by Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland. Martin and Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks right, thank you. Work. Cheers. I've known you guys for a long time, and you burst into song, like, routinely. Is that part of your culture, or are you guys just particularly interested in music? I think completely part of the culture. And I think it's no coincidence that you've noticed that of all the different nationalities that come here every year to visit you, that, you know, the Welsh, the Scottish, the Irish in particular are prone to burst into song at the drop of a hat. Why is that? I just think it's something we've always grown up with. First of all, we all know the songs. We learn them at school or we go to football matches, going to church, in the house. I think it's something to do with the fact that we share a common Celtic heritage. But I also think there's a, a big common denominator, and that is the English. It's, it's like they've conquered us, and this was our way of showing our badge of identity. Like you grew up in Ireland, and Martin, you grew up in Wales. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking about dealing with the English or, or any sort of a big power that sort of is an overlord. I've noticed that in many places around the world. I was just in Estonia. And they told me when you live between Germany and Russia, you don't have any weapons. You just got to let people know you exist. And you do that by singing. Right. In Wales, you have um, another culture, which is the popular culture around the pub, which is the Estethrod culture. It's competition, and it starts at the age of five and goes up all the way through so your life. Estefad, how do you say that? Estefad, it's, it's literally a chairing. You, you, you get your best bard of the competition. You enthrone them. They, they, they get ah, enthroned. So it's a, it's a music competition, a song That's festival. Right. And it's organized on a school basis, a chapel basis, a local basis, a county, national. It works up that way. It works up that way. So from the age of five up, people are encouraged to compete, not only in singing, but in dance, in music. So this would permeate your culture in, in church, yeah. in the pubs, in the sports arenas, yeah. in the homes. Yeah. And then there's a, it, it is woven into a competition. That's right. And the competitions are, as I say, at different levels. But there's a, a huge national one. Now, people will tell you that the Glastonbury Pop Festival is the largest outdoor music festival in Europe. It's not. It's the National Estethod of Wales. And where is that? It's, it moves from town to town, north to south, every single um, oh, so year. It's, it's not in, uh, there's one town that's famous for having a, a, a song festival. That's the Llangollen International so uh, that's different. That's different. That's fixed in Llangollen in the north. And uh, people come from literally all over the world wearing the national costumes again, dancing, singing. There's more on the Celtic singing cultures of Ireland and Wales in just a moment. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides to the singing culture of the Celts are Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland and Martin Delandovitz from Wales. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can share your own stories of encountering soul-stirring music in its native setting. Share your comments in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Now, when I think of music um, in Ireland and Wales, in Ireland, Stephen, pub music comes to mind, traditional folk music in the pubs. And Martin, when I think about Wales, uh, men's choirs in yes, churches yeah. and in slate mines comes That's to true, mind. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit, Stephen, about uh, the folk music in the pubs in Ireland, how that is such a strong part of the Irish culture. Well, I would imagine every Irish man or woman knows probably at least 400 songs. They have this repertoire in their head of 400, at least the chorus. And the pub is a big part of our culture, much more so than Wales. So I think what's happening here is our singing is reflecting the cultures of the particular Celtic nations. Like myself and Martin, we're both Celts, but we're quite different Celts. Like the Welsh are different to the Irish and the Scottish are different to the Bretons and the Galithians are different to the Cornish. You go through Wales, you'll not find as many pubs as you will in Ireland. You go through Ireland, there's no slate mines or coal mines. So, that you know, the singing reflects what the people have grown up with. The environment, yeah. I, and also you'll find that in Ireland we sing a lot of patriotic ballads, a lot of what we call rebel songs. You don't find those as much, I think, Martin, in Wales, do you? No, or, what, what we had from the 1700s on was we had the, basically the nonconformist, the Protestant revival. 
And things like dancing and singing and drinking were perceived as being bad. I'll not speak against any of them today, but uh, that had the effect of stifling the, the, let's say, the older, the medieval folk culture. It was cut off in the 1700s and 1800s. Well, now that's interesting. So you had that sort of Puritan streak. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas the Irish have the rebel streak. Uh, yeah, it is a very different thing. Consequently, in Wales, I, when I think of music, I think of church music. And, and, hymns, if, yeah. and if I'm in a mine, it's still church music in a mine. It's, it's the most bizarre thing that if you go to, a, let's say, a rugby match, Wales is great sport. Everybody is drunk, they're reeling. What do they sing? They sing hymns. (laughs) Tell tell us how the mine culture and the music. I mean, Wales provided the slate roofs for much of Europe at one point. And and its coal drove ships all over the world. Coal mines and slate mines. And that brought people together. What had been a scattered rural population became a densely concentrated urban industrial population. And of course, once you get people together, then the large choirs can happen. Now, this would be a time to... I mean, it's not a benevolent industry. It would probably be owned by big shots who didn't care a lot about their workers. Very harsh working conditions. That's true, but at the same time, you have to say, they had more money than they had on the land. The land oh, yeah. didn't... I mean, you've been to Wales. Right? And, until the industry changed. But yeah. in, in its good times, this was the source of solid employment. Absolutely. Nevertheless, people spent most of their waking hours... Uh, working. Underground. That's right. And uh, they would get uh, 45 minutes for lunch, and half of that time they'd spend singing together. That's right. They'd sing at lunchtime. And of course, where do you go on Sunday? Your day off, you go to the chapel and you sing. Maybe they're not rebel songs like Stephen has in Ireland, but they are songs to fight to keep your spirit up in hard times. Absolutely. You see, nonconformists work through the medium of Welsh. And these hymns that swell the hearts and the prides of the Welsh people, they are too in Welsh. And that's the difference. If you're with a very traditional, small town, conservative um, mining community, what's a song that would come to mind? Gosh, um, it depends on what the mood is. But if you if you're getting down to the end of the evening, you've got something like um, you know great hymns will come out. Oh, me glow up the middle eyes and galo arnavi, calvary, which is a hymn. And you're singing in Welsh. I'm singing in Welsh. Yes. So even if you spoke in English, you would sing in Welsh. Oh yes. Why I don't, is that? I don't know any Welsh songs in English. Ah. So what was the name of that song? Uh, that's quite the ad. The invitation. The invitation. Yeah. I- invitation to what? Uh, join Christ. Join Christ. So, and you would be get together. I look at you singing, and I can see forty Welsh faces, oh. just like yours, together yeah. in a church, on a square, in a pub. Yep. When I go to Wales, I think one of the great travel tips is to find out when the church choirs are practicing. They practice in a, in a church uh, rec room, kind of, and then they go over to the pub afterwards and that's continue right. singing. And that's when the best singing is heard. And, and tourists are welcome to, to sit and yeah, observe? to practices, and then if you can get into that pub atmosphere, off comes the collar and tie, yes. and they go for it. Some of my favorite Welsh evenings have been enjoying, like a little church mouse, the hard-working choirs practicing, and then you go across the town and the whole gang stays together, yep. nothing else going on, and then you add a little beer to the atmosphere, you're in a pub instead of a church, and the ties come off and the yep. music really gets... And the hair on the back of your neck goes up and the tear comes in your eye. Uh, I love that. And Rick, anyone coming to explore the Celtic singing culture in Wales will see that the songs are sung mostly in Welsh, whereas in Ireland they're mostly in English. And even that's a badge of, of conquest. That's, it reflects the fact that we were conquered and now we sing in the, and love singing in the language of our former colonial masters. We do have many good songs in Irish, beautiful old hymns too, and, and rebellious patriotic ballads, but most of what we're singing is in English. Oh, she, she is ready to bear And come sweet, come a or the stormy And heart I will give to thee. Fare thee well, my love, and remember me. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Celtic singing cultures, specifically Ireland and Wales. We're joined by Martin Delendovitz, who comes to us from Carnarvon in northern Wales, and Stephen McPhillamy, who lives in Derry in the north of Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. John's on the line in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. John, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. 
Hi, John. Do you have a thought about uh, Celtic singing cultures? Yeah, uh, one of my favorite places to go to is Galway for the annual early music festival. And that focuses on music uh, of the olden days, the 12th to 18th century. And a lot of the uh, singers dress in period costumes, too. Now, that sounds interesting, because as a tour guide, I know that we like to take people to the uh, castles and hear these medieval banquets, and it's, right. it's, it's a little bit cheesy and touristy, but it's beautiful music with your harp playing and so on. Stephen, that sounds like a great opportunity. Uh, and, uh, John, are those, uh, are those songs only from Ireland, or are they from other cultures as well? I'm not too familiar with the festival, you see. I, I believe that they are just from Ireland. All right, and it's in English and in Irish when they're singing? or Yes, it's both. And there's a lot of the um, period instruments that are used. Now, that's, that's in May every year. It's called the Early Music Festival in Galway, the major town on the west coast of Ireland. That's correct. And they have workshops. They have a lot of free events that are outside and indoors, you know, panelists. It's, it's just a, a, another interesting reason to go to Galway. There's always a reason to go there. And there is a sort of a subculture of people that are aficionados of medieval music and early, early music. Uh, and uh, when you connect into that, boy, you get a lot of enthusiasm, don't you, John? Yes, you do. And the thing is, that brings people from all over, not only the U.S., but the continent. You know, as a traveler, um, when you want this early music, this uh, Renaissance music or medieval music or castle music with harps, I don't, I don't know exactly what you call it, but you have that opportunity in Wales and in Ireland. Uh, Martin, in Wales, what would you recommend if somebody wants a medieval folk music? Medieval folk music, you, you've, you've got to look for it. As I say, the nonconformist revival tended to cut that off. I mean, it's, it's kept alive sort of as a... Absolutely. As I mean, a, the Celtic harp, which is emblematic of Ireland and part of Welsh culture too, is very much alive in both countries. There's sort of medieval folk banquets uh, like at Rith- right. Rithin Rith- Castle. Rithin Castle and down in the south at, uh, I forget where, Cardiff, you get them too. In Cardiff. Uh, yeah. In the north, the Rithin Castle. R- Rithin U- Castle, yeah. R-U-T-H-I-N is a, a wonderful musical evening. And, I enjoy it. You know, it's kind of like a little bit of Vegas show or sort of thing with a, what they call wenches and, and one of the tourists gets to be the the king, and they put a pewter crown on him, and you've got wonderful harp music and wonderful singing and, a, and sort of a, a, a jazzy uh, MC for the evening. But it is genuine, good Welsh singing it's, with traditional instruments. It's, it's very good indeed. You know, people criticize it, but heck, it's the 21st century, come on. You're not going to have medieval folk music <laughs> no, without, <laughs> without a little oomph like that. Stephen McPhillamy in Ireland, uh, Bunratty Castle is the, the touristy, famous uh, medieval folk banquet. Are there others? Yeah, the people who run Bunratty Castle have, have a variety of properties along the west coast there. Dungura Castle outside Galway, and they're all run by the same people. Um, they would be pretty much exclusively for tourists and Tour visitors. Buses, uh, yeah, um, I, I wouldn't imagine too many Irish people would be right. going to no, them. No, they're you know? pretty crassly touristic in a castle with a bunch of people wearing medieval outfits. Yeah, uh, I've never heard anyone not enjoy them, but it's just, fun. you know, that's, they are what they are. So it sounds like what John's talking about, the early music festival in Galway in May might be a better thing. Yeah, uh, John, it, just a, you may well be aware of this, but the ultimate festival of Celtic singing is held in Brittany in France every August. It's the International Celtic Festival. We all get together for the one festival in really? the town of Lorient in the northwest of France, beautiful old medieval town. And you've got everybody there, the Welsh, the Irish, the Scottish, the Bretons, they come over from eastern Canada, the, the Nova Scotians. Just a real great vibe going on. Everyone's and, dressed in costume as well, food. Uh, and you know, is, when I was in Galicia, Stephen, uh, northwest Spain, I fell into a little uh, club where these people were practicing, and it was a Galician folk music troupe. And it really felt like this is where river dance meets flamenco. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's true. Because their greatest piper, Carlos Nunes, is in Riverdance or was in Riverdance for right, a long yeah. time. So that's and a very he's good in Northwest Spain, century. Galicia. Yeah, and there was that that Irish kind of fire and that right. Spanish sort of duende or soul, right. and they bring it together. It was mesmerizing. So there's this wonderful Celtic spirit for music. John, I think that's a very interesting tip to think that the best Gaelic collection of uh, cultural music would be in Brittany. Yeah, I, thanks for the tip. I'm gonna have to check that out. Just have to get more vacation time from work. Hey, John, thanks for your call. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you, sir. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Celtic singing cultures and joined by Martin Delandovitz from Wales and Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland. Stephen, we talked about Welsh songs are often in Welsh and very meaningful, but, but it goes over my head. When I'm in Ireland in a pub, even if there's not a tourist within 50 miles, I understand every word in those songs because they're in English, and the lyrics are really powerful. I, it's a way of storytelling. Like As a tour guide, when I'm on tour, I like to tell at least half my stories through song. 
When I was a wee boy, I had a priest who told me that a song is better than five prayers. And that's always stuck with me growing up. So if you're in Ireland and you buy, let's say, a CD of 20 Irish patriotic ballads, that's 20 Irish history lessons already on the CD. Like If you listen to the lyrics, there's a great historical narrative that you can learn from. If you're travelling in Ireland and you're in a pub at night or you're just in a family home and they start singing one of our patriotic ballads to you, you can learn so much about our history just from them. Like where I'm from in the historic city of Derry, in the early 1800s, many men were sent off to Australia as convicts and then... A song was written called I Wish I Was Back Home in Derry. Mm. And, it, and it's a very powerful ballad. And it was written from a nationalist perspective to go to a tune called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald that Gordon Lightfoot had done over here. And if you're sitting in a bar at night in Ireland and there's loads of people around you and then hush comes because people want to give respect to the song and listen to the narrative, even though they've heard it many times before, they want to be reminded of it. And, and like, for example, it would go something like this. In 1803 we sailed out to sea, out from the sweet town of Derry. For Australia bound, if we didn't all drown, the marks of our fathers we carried. In our rusty iron chains we cried for our wains, and the good women we left in sorrow. As the mainsails unfurled, our curses we hurled on the English and thoughts of tomorrow. Oh, I wish I was back home in Derry. Oh, I wish I was back home in Derry. Now, if you're listening to that in a bar straight away, you've learned that Derry men were sent to Australia and you might want to find out more. And if I'm even listening to that in a radio studio in the United States, I'm just overwhelmed with, uh, with emotion. There's a reverence to that, isn't there? Even in a pub scene. Pretty much always there's respect shown to whoever's got up and has started singing. They don't have to be a good singer. They just have to have the heart to want to sing. And I think that's a part of Celtic culture. And I see it in Martin as well. And I see it in our Scottish tour guide friends here. I think it's a genetic thing that we have. Like if I'm ever feeling down, I like to sing a song or even just hear a song. And I feel almost right back up again. Is that right? Or, so you I can like to combat, hear a song and you can I do combat feel right a little depression up. with some singing. Yeah. Um, sometimes you have the blues and you hear a song and you listen to these inspirational things and you think, God, my troubles aren't as bad as what my ancestors went through. So, you know, you get Maybe inspired. that's one of the reasons for the, the powerful lyrics of the Irish songs, considering the hard and, and difficult history that right. Ireland has weathered. So yeah, in Ireland, the lyrics are, are very important. There's a great historical narrative there. In Ireland, too, we have a wide array of other topics. Like I was sitting thinking about it recently and... We, we basically have about four categories of song. Uh, you'll have um, patriotic ballads, you'll have a lot of love songs, which is an interesting thing because we're Northern Europeans. And I would have thought that a love song or a romantic song is more of a Southern European thing. Like yet, here we are with the Welsh, the Scottish and the Irish, and we're all singing about men loving women, women loving men. So there's a lot of... Po- okay, there's, you said there's four different kinds of yeah. songs. Yeah, patriotic songs. Patriotic songs, uh, love songs and romantic songs. Songs of emigration, particularly to the United States and Canada and, and uh, down to Australia. Welsh, I don't think, would have that as much because they've been able to stay at home more well, than uh, we have. No, 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 no. We emigrated, as, I'm sorry, I'm cutting across it. We emigrated proportionately as much as anybody else. It's just that we don't make a song and dance about oh, it. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> okay, so, but the, Interesting, yeah, so the Irish yeah. do put their history uh, in their songs. I just neglected to mention one category. Oh, what's the category? Drinking songs. Oh, <laughs> well, make a quick review. There's, okay, so, okay. Stephen, there's four categories. In Ireland, yeah, we have four categories of songs. There's rebel songs, there's drinking songs, there's romantic songs, and there's songs of emigration. Songs of emigration, mostly to Canada and the United States. Yeah. Now, we've talked about Wales and Ireland. What about Scotland and music? Scotland's culture is quite a strange one because it's always separated between the Highlands and the Lowlands. The Lowlands were always both Scots, uh, which is a hybridized version of English and Scottish, whereas the, the West and the Highlands always spoke Gaelic, which is the same Irish that was being spoken in Ireland because that's where the people came from. The, uh, the Highlanders were, in fact, emigrated uh, Irish people. And so, too, is the musical culture. And therefore, you get the harp, not the bagpipe, playing a great part in, in Western Highland Scotland. The bagpipe develops later. And all the harpers that existed in medieval Scotland were Irish. Now, would this be a culture where uh, Welsh and Irish people would know some Scottish folk songs? Irish people are more likely to linguistically. It's a different branch of Celtic language. Yeah, okay. So we'd understand them. Here's the interesting point about the Scottish songs. On the 31st of December every year, Practically everybody in the in the world or the English speaking world sings a Scottish song at uh, twelve midnight. Indeed. Old Lang Syne. That's right. It's a Scottish. Robert Burns uh, song, yeah. and then all these people sing the song. And they have no idea what it is. Yeah. Old Lang Syne is the Scots dialect for old long since, and that's how people in Scotland would have started a bedtime story like once upon a time, upon a old time. long since, and it becomes mm. in the Scottish accent, old Lang Syne. 
Yeah, it's true, and, that, and that's part of that lowland Scottish tradition. Yeah. The Highlands that everybody knows, the kilt-wearing, bagpipe-playing, that's a totally different culture to that of the lowlands, isn't it? Yeah. And a lot that, of that is military. The, the great Highland bagpipe uh, really, one can say, possibly came out of the British Army. But the mm. early pipes are much smaller. Uh, you get the elbow mm. pipes, the island pipes, as well as you get the mouths. And you got pipes in Welsh and Irish culture as well. That's right, indeed. There is an area where we do know a Scottish song. It's because of the rugby matches that we play against each other. The three Celtic nations are renowned for their stirring anthems, you see. There is one area where Welsh people and Irish people would give homage to a Scottish song, and that is when we play them in rugby. We want to beat them, but when their anthem comes on, it's very stirring. All the Celtic nations are renowned for their stirring rugby anthems, and the, the Scottish one is known as Flower of Scotland. It's about uh, sending the English back down over the border. <laughs> Which you can all relate to. Uh, well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit of that. Okay. O flower of Scotland, when will we see your likes again that fought and died for your wee bit hill and glen and stood against it? Proud Edward's army and sent him homeward to think again. Whoa, I've got an Irishman and a Welshman singing a Scots anthem. That's a world first. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen McPhillamy, Martin DeLandvit, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about your Celtic singing cultures. Thanks, Rick. Little Irish expression, con glora je august honora in the heron, for the glory of God and the honor of Ireland. <laughs> what does that mean? It means thank you very much, Rick, and may good be on you. May good be on me, and you too. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can post your travel reports, listen to archives of past shows, and search them by topic or date. Be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.